This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Chip in Tampa, Florida, on March the 29th, 2006. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Two, Part One. The history of England during the seventeenth century is the history of the transformation of a limited monarchy, constituted after the fashion of the Middle Ages, into a limited monarchy suited to that more advanced state of society, in which the public charges can no longer be borne by the estates of the crown, and in which the public defense can no longer be entrusted to a feudal militia. We have seen that the politicians who were at the head of the long parliament made, in 1642, a great effort to accomplish this change by transferring, directly and formally, to the estates of the realm the choice of ministers, the command of the army, and the superintendence of the whole executive administration. The scheme was perhaps the best that could then be contrived but it was completely disconcerted by the course which the civil war took. The houses triumphed, it is true, but not till after such a struggle as made it necessary for them to call into existence a power which they could not control, and which soon began to domineer over all orders and all parties. During a few years the evils inseparable from military government were, in some degree, mitigated by the wisdom and magnanimity of the great man who held the supreme command. But when the sword which he had wielded with energy indeed, but with energy always guided by good sense and generally tempered by good nature, had passed to captains who possessed neither his abilities nor his virtues, it seemed too probable that order and liberty would perish in one ignominious ruin. That ruin was happily averted. It had been too much the practice of writers zealous for freedom to represent the restoration as a disastrous event, and to condemn the folly or baseness of that convention which recalled the royal family without exacting new securities against maladministration. Those who hold this language do not comprehend the real nature of the crisis which followed the deposition of Richard Cromwell. England was in imminent danger of falling under the tyranny of a succession of small men raised up and pulled down by military caprice. To deliver the country from the domination of the soldiers was the first object of every enlightened patriot, but it was an object which, while the soldiers were united, the most sanguine could scarcely expect to obtain. On a sudden a gleam of hope appeared. General was opposed to general, army to army. On the use which might be made of one auspicious moment depended the future destiny of the nation. Our ancestors used that moment well. They forgot old injuries, waived petty scruples, adjourned to a more convenient season all dispute about the reforms which our institutions needed, and stood together 
Cavaliers and Roundheads, Episcopalians and Presbyterians, in firm union for the old laws of the land against military despotism. The exact partition of power among king, lords, and commons might well be postponed till it had been decided whether England should be governed by king, lords, and commons, or by curiosers and pikemen. Had the statesmen of the conventions taken a different course, had they held long debates on the principles of government, had they drawn up a new constitution and sent it to Charles, had the conferences been opened, had couriers been passing and repassing during some weeks between Westminster and the Netherlands with projects and counter-projects, replies by Hyde and rejoinders by Prynne, the coalition on which the public safety depended would have been dissolved. The Presbyterians and Royalists would certainly have quarrelled. The military factions might possibly have been reconciled, and the misjudging friends of liberty might long have regretted, under a rule worse than that of the worst Stuart, the golden opportunity which had been suffered to escape. The old civil polity was therefore, by the general consent of both the great parties, re-established. It was again exactly what it had been when Charles I, eighteen years before, withdrew from his capital. All those acts of the long Parliament, which had received the royal assent, were admitted to be still in full force. One fresh concession, a concession in which the Cavaliers were even more deeply interested than the Roundheads, was easily obtained from the restored king. The military tenure of land had been originally created as a means of natural defense, but in the course of ages whatever was useful in the institution had disappeared, and nothing was left but ceremonies and grievances. A landed proprietor, who held an estate under the crown by night service, and it was thus that most of the soil of England was held, had to pay a large fine on coming to his property. He could not alienate one acre without purchasing a license. When he died, if his domains descended to an infant, the sovereign was guardian, and was not only entitled to great part of the rents during the minority, but could require the ward, under heavy penalties, to marry any person of suitable rank. The chief bait which attracted a needy sycophant to the court was the hope of obtaining, as the reward of servility and flattery, a royal letter to an heiress. These abuses had perished with the monarchy. That they should not revive with it was the wish of every landed gentleman in the kingdom. They were, therefore, solemnly abolished by statute, and no relic of the ancient tenures in chivalry was allowed to remain, except those honorary services which are still at a coronation rendered to the person of the sovereign by some lords of manners. The troops were now to be disbanded. Fifty thousand men, accustomed to the profession of arms, were at once thrown on the world, and Experience seemed to warrant the belief that this change would produce such misery and crime that the discharged veterans would be seen begging in every street, or that they would be driven by hunger to pillage. But no such result followed. In a few months there remained not a trace indicating that the most formidable army in the world 
had just been absorbed into the mass of the community. The royalists themselves confessed that, in every department of honest industry, the discarded warriors prospered beyond other men, that none was charged with any theft or robbery, that none was heard to ask an alms, and that, if a baker, a mason, or a wagoner attracted notice by his diligence and sobriety, he was, in all probability, one of Oliver's old soldiers. The military tyranny had passed away, but it had left deep and enduring traces in the public mind. The name of Standing Army was long held in abhorrence, and it is remarkable that this feeling was even stronger among the Cavaliers than among the Roundheads. It ought to be considered as a most fortunate circumstance that, when our country was, for the first and last time, ruled by the sword, the sword was in the hands not of legitimate princes, but of those rebels who slew the king and demolished the church. Had a prince with a title as good as that of Charles commanded an army as good as that of Cromwell, there would have been little hope indeed for the liberties of England. Happily, that instrument by which alone the monarchy could be made absolute became an object of peculiar horror and disgust to the monarchical party and long continued to be inseparably associated in the imagination of royalists and prelatists with regicide and field-preaching. A century after the death of Cromwell, the Tories still continued to clamor against every augmentation of the regular soldiery, and to sound the praise of a national militia. So late as the year 1786, a minister who enjoyed no common measure of their confidence found it impossible to overcome their aversion to his scheme of fortifying the coast. Nor did they ever look with entire complacency on the standing army till the French Revolution gave a new direction to their apprehensions. The coalition which had restored the king terminated with the danger from which it had sprung and two hostile parties again appeared ready for conflict. Both, indeed, were agreed as to the propriety of inflicting punishment on some unhappy men, who were, at that moment, objects of almost universal hatred. Cromwell was no more, and those who had fled before him were forced to content themselves with the miserable satisfaction of digging up, hanging, quartering, and burning the remains of the greatest prince that has ever ruled England. Other objects of vengeance, few indeed, yet too many, were found among the Republican chiefs. Soon, however, the conquerors, glutted with the blood of the regicides, turned against each other. The roundheads, while admitting the virtues of the late king, and while condemning the sentence passed upon him by an illegal tribunal, yet maintained that his administration had been, in many things, unconstitutional, and that the houses had taken arms against him from good motives and on strong grounds. The monarchy, these politicians conceived, had no worse enemy than the flatterer, who exalted pejorative above the law, who condemned all opposition to regal encroachments, and who reviled not only Cromwell and Harrison, but Pym and Hampton as traitors. 
If the king wished for a quiet and prosperous reign, he must confide in those who, though they had drawn the sword in defense of the invaded privileges of Parliament, had yet exposed themselves to the rage of the soldiers in order to save his father, and had taken the chief part in bringing back the royal family. The feeling of the Cavaliers was widely different. During eighteen years they had, through all vicissitudes, been faithful to the crown. Having shared the distress of their prince, were they not to share his triumph? Was no distinction to be made between them and the disloyal subject who had fought against his rightful sovereign, who had adhered to Richard Cromwell, and who had never concurred in the restoration of the Stuarts, still it appeared that nothing else might save the nation from the tyranny of the army? Grant that such a man had, by his recent services, fairly earned his pardon. Yet were his services rendered at the eleventh hour to be put in comparison with the toils and sufferings of those who had borne the burden and heat of the day? Was he to be ranked with men who had no need of the royal clemency, with men who had in every part of their lives merited the royal gratitude? Above all, was he to be suffered to retain a fortune raised out of the substance of the ruined defenders of the throne? Was it not enough that his head and his patrimonial estate, a hundred times forfeited to justice, were secure, and that he shared with the rest of the nation in the blessings of that mild government of which he had too long been the foe? Was it necessary that he should be rewarded for his treason at the expense of men whose only crime was the fidelity with which they had observed their oath of allegiance? And what interest had the king in gorging his old enemies with prey torn from his old friends? What confidence could be placed in a man who had opposed their sovereign, made war on him, imprisoned him, and who even now, instead of hanging down their heads in shame and contrition, vindicated all that they had done, and seemed to think that they had given an illustrious proof of loyalty, by just stopping short of regicide. It was true that they had lately assisted to set up the throne, but it was not less true that they had previously pulled it down, and that they still avowed privileges which might impel them to pull it down again. Undoubtedly it might be fit that marks of royal approbation should be bestowed on some converts who had been eminently useful, but policy, as well as justice and gratitude, enjoined the king to give the highest place in his regard to those who, from first to last, through good and evil, had stood by his house. On these grounds the cavaliers very naturally demanded indemnity for all they had suffered, and preference in the distribution of the favors of the crown. Some violent members of the party went further, and clamored for large categories of proscription. The political feud was, as usual, exasperated by a religious feud. The king found the church in a singular state. A short time before the commencement of the civil war, his father had given a reluctant assent to a bill strongly supported by Falkland, which deprived the bishops of their seats in the House of Lords. But episcopacy and the liturgy had never been abolished by law. 
The long Parliament, however, had passed ordinances which made a complete revolution in church government and in public worship. The new system was, in principle, scarcely less Erastian than that which it displaced. The houses, guided chiefly by the counsels of the accomplished Selden, had determined to keep the spiritual power strictly subordinate to the temporal power. They had refused to declare that any form of ecclesiastical polity was of divine origin, and they believed that, from all the church courts, an appeal should lie in the last resort to Parliament. With this highly important reservation, it had been resolved to set up in England a hierarchy closely resembling that which now exists in Scotland. The authority of councils, rising one above another in regular gradation, was substituted for the authority of bishops and archbishops. The liturgy gave place to the Presbyterian Directory, but scarcely had the new regulations been framed when the independents rose to supreme influence in the state. The independents had no disposition to enforce the ordinances touching classical, provincial, and national synods. These ordinances, therefore, were never carried into full execution. The Presbyterian system was fully established nowhere but in Middlesex and Lancashire. In the other fifty counties, almost every parish seems to have been unconnected with the neighboring parishes. In some districts, indeed, the ministers formed themselves into voluntary associations, for the purpose of mutual help and counsel, but these associations had no coercive power. The patrons of livings, being now checked by neither bishop nor presbytery, would have been at liberty to confide the cure of souls to the most scandalous of mankind, but for the arbitrary intervention of Oliver. He established, by his own authority, a board of commissioners called Triers, most of these persons were independent divines, but a few Presbyterian ministers and a few laymen had seats. The certificate of the Triers stood in the place both of institution and of induction, and without such a certificate no person could hold a benefice. That was undoubtedly one of the most despotic acts ever done by any English ruler. Yet, as it was generally felt that without some such precaution the country would be overrun by ignorant and drunken reprobates, bearing the name and receiving the pay of ministers, some highly respectable persons, who were not in general friendly to Cromwell, allowed that on this occasion he had been a public benefactor. The presentees whom the Triers had approved took possession of the rectories, cultivated the glebe lands, collected the tithens, prayed without book or surplice, and administered the Eucharist to communicants neatly seated at long tables. Thus the ecclesiastical polity of the realm was an inextricable confusion. Episcopacy was the form of government prescribed by the old law which was still unrepealed. The form of government prescribed by parliamentary ordinance was Presbyterian, but neither the old law nor the parliamentary ordinance was practically in force. 
the church actually established may be described as an irregular body made up of a few presbyteries and many independent congregations, which were all held down and held together by the authority of the government. Of those who had been active in bringing back the king, many were zealous for synods and for the directory, and many were desirous to terminate by a compromise the religious dissensions which had long agitated England. Between the bigoted followers of Laud and the bigoted followers of Knox, there could be neither peace nor truce, but it did not seem impossible to effect an accommodation between the moderate Episcopalians of the school of Usher and the moderate Presbyterians of the school of Baxter. The moderate Episcopalians would admit that a bishop might lawfully be assisted by a council. The moderate Presbyterians would not deny that each provincial assembly might lawfully have a permanent president, and that this president might lawfully be called a bishop. There might be a revised liturgy, which should not exclude extemporaneous prayer, a baptismal service in which the sign of the cross might be used or omitted at discretion, a communion service at which the faithful might sit if their conscience forbade them to kneel, but to no such plan could the great bodies of the cavaliers listen with patience. The religious members of that party were conscientiously attracted to the whole system of their church. She had been dear to their murdered king. She had consoled them in defeat and penury. Her service, so often whispered in an inner chamber during the season of trial, had such a charm for them that they were unwilling to part with a single response. Other royalists, who made little presents to piety, yet loved the Episcopal Church, because she was the foe of their foes. They valued a prayer or a ceremony not on account of the comfort which it conveyed to themselves, but on account of the vexation which it gave to the roundheads, and were so far from being disposed to purchase union by concession, that they objected to concession chiefly because it tended to produce union. Such feelings, though blamable, were natural and not wholly inexcusable. The Puritans had undoubtedly in the day of their power given cruel provocation. They ought to have learned, if from nothing else, yet from their own discontents, from their own struggles, from their own victory, from the fall of that proud hierarchy by which they had been so heavily oppressed, that in England and in the seventeenth century it was not yet in the power of the civil magistrate to drill the minds of men into conformity with his own system of theology. They proved, however, as intolerant and as meddling as Laud had been. They interdicted under heavy penalties the use of the Book of Common Prayer, not only in churches, but even in private homes. It was a crime in a child to read by the bedside of a sick parent one of those beautiful collects which had soothed the griefs of forty generations of Christians. 
severe punishments were denounced against such as would presume to blame the Calvinistic mode of worship. Clergymen of respectable character were not only ejected from their benefices by thousands, but were frequently exposed to the outrages of a fanatical rabble. Churches and sepulchres, fine works of art, and curious remains of antiquity were brutally defaced. The Parliament resolved that all pictures in the royal collection, which contained representations of Jesus or the Virgin Mother, should be burned. Sculpture fared as ill as painting. Nymphs and graces, the work of Ionian chisels, were delivered over to Puritan stonemasons to be made decent. Against the lighter vices, the ruling faction waged war with a zeal little tempered by humanity or by common sense. Sharp laws were passed against betting. It was enacted that adultery should be punished with death. The illicit intercourse of the sexes, even where neither violence nor seduction was imputed, where no public scandal was given, where no conjugal right was violated, was made a misdemeanor. Public amusements, from the masks which were exhibited at the mansions of the great, down to the wrestling matches and grinning matches on village greens, were vigorously attacked. One ordinance directed that all the maypoles in England should be forthwith hewn down. Another proscribed all theatrical diversions. The playhouses were to be dismantled. The spectators fined. The actors whipped at the cart's tail. Rope dancing, puppet shows, bowls, horse racing were regarded with no friendly eye. But bear baiting, then the favorite diversion of high and low, was the abomination which most strongly stirred the wrath of the austere sectaries. It is to be remarked that their antipathy to this sport had nothing in common with the feeling which has, in our own time, induced the legislature to interfere for the purpose of protecting beasts against the wanton cruelty of men. The Puritans hated bear-baiting, not because it gave pain to the bear, but because it gave pleasure to the spectators. Indeed, he generally contrived to enjoy the double pleasure of tormenting both spectators and bear. Perhaps no single circumstance more strongly illustrates the temper of the precisions than their conduct respecting Christmas Day. Christmas had been, from time immemorial, the season of joy and domestic affection, the season when families assembled, when children came home from school, where quarrels were made up, when carols were heard in every street, when every house was decorated with evergreens, and every table loaded with good cheer. At that season all hearts not utterly destitute of kindness were enlarged and softened. At that season the poor were admitted to partake largely of the overflowings of the wealth of the rich, whose bounty was peculiarly acceptable on account of the shortness of the days and the severity of the weather. At that season the interval between landlord and tenant, master and servant, was less marked than through the rest of the year. 
where there is much enjoyment there will be some excess, yet on the whole the spirit in which the holiday was kept was not unworthy of a Christian festival. The long Parliament gave orders in 1644 that the 25th of December should be held strictly observed as a fast, and that all men should pass it in humbly bemoaning the great national sin which they and their fathers had so often committed on that day by romping under the mistletoe, eating boar's head, and drinking ale flavored with roasted apples. No public act of the time seems to have irritated the common people more. On the next anniversary of the festival, formidable riots broke out in many places. The constables were resisted, the magistrates insulted, the houses of noted zealots attacked, and the prescribed services of the day openly read in the churches. Such was the spirit of the extreme Puritans, both Presbyterian and Independent. Oliver, indeed, was little disposed to be either the persecutor or a meddler, but Oliver, the head of a party, and consequently to a great extent the slave of a party, could not govern altogether according to his own inclination. Even under his administration, many magistrates within their jurisdiction made themselves as odious as Sir Hudibras, interfered with all the pleasures of the neighborhood, dispersed festive meetings, and put fiddlers in the stocks. Still more formidable was the zeal of the soldiers. In every village where they appeared, there was an end of dancing, bell-ringing, and hockey. In London they several times interrupted theatrical performances, at which the protector had the judgment and good nature to connive. With the fear and hatred inspired by such a tyranny, contempt was largely mingled. The peculiarities of the Puritan, his look, his dress, his dialect, his strange scruples, had been, ever since the time of Elizabeth, favorite subjects with mockers. But these peculiarities appeared far more grotesque in a faction which ruled a great empire than in an obscure and persecuted congregation. The cant, which had moved laughter when it was heard on the stage, from the tribulation wholesome, and zeal of the land busy, was still more laughable when it proceeded from the lips of generals and counsellors of state. It is also to be noticed that, during the civil troubles, several sects had sprung into existence, whose eccentricities surpassed anything that had been seen before in England. A mad tailor named Lodwick Muggleton wandered from pothouse to pothouse, tippling ale and denouncing eternal torments against those who refused to believe on his testimony that the supreme being was only six feet high, and that the sun was just four miles from the earth. George Fox had raised a tempest of derision by proclaiming that it was a violation of Christian sincerity to designate a single person by a plural pronoun, and that it was an idolatrous homage to Janus and Woden to talk about January and Wednesday. 
His doctrine, a few years later, was embraced by some eminent men, and rose greatly in the public estimation. But at the time of the Restoration, the Quakers were popularly regarded as the most despicable of fanatics. By the Puritans they were treated with severity here, and were persecuted to the death in New England. Nevertheless, the public, which seldom makes nice distinctions, often confounded the Puritan with the Quaker. Both were schismatics, both hated episcopacy and the liturgy, both had what seemed extravagant whimsies about dress, diversions, and postures. Widely as the two differed in opinion, they were popularly classed together as canting schismatics, and whatever was ridiculous or odious in either increased the scorn and aversion which the multitude felt for both. So ends Book One, Chapter Two, Part One.